Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shee. I'm currently a sophomore at UCLA, was elected as the youngest delegate for Joe Biden, and also co-hosts this podcast. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks, the author of The Watergate Girl, and also an MSNBC legal analyst, as well as Victor's co-host on this and a co-host of Hashtag Sisters-in-Law. I'm also the person who wears Hashtag Jill's pins. And today's pin is another pin in honor of Ukraine and sending them my support and courage and strength. Uh, So thank you all for listening and we'll get right on to it. The events that unfolded on January 6th are etched into all of our minds. Not only did we witness the Capitol desecrated by insurrectionists who former President Trump egged on, but in the aftermath, we also witnessed the final transformation of the Republican Party into a Donald Trump cult. Any call for investigation or accountability for those events was quickly shut down. That and the decision of the GOP to make the defeat of anything Democrats propose only puts the GOP and the American democracy at greater risk. Today, we are lucky to be joined by Rachel Vindman, a former Republican who is now an outspoken critic of both the party and its former leader and actually current leader, Donald J. Trump. She'll help us to explore the issues that she sees with the Republican Party now. Rachel appears frequently on multiple cable news networks and is an active tweeter. She is also the co-host of The Suburban Woman's Problem, a podcast in which she and her two co-hosts chat with women across the country about how politics affects their lives, their families, and how to become part of the growing suburban women problem and the solutions that they have to those problems. Our regular listeners will also recognize that Rachel's husband was a former guest on this very show. He is, of course, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, who testified at the first Trump impeachment about the phone call, the famous perfect phone call that President Trump, then President Trump, had with the president of Ukraine, Zelensky. Um, He is now, of course, a regular on cable news networks commenting on Trump and especially Ukraine, the country of his birth. Thank you so much for being with us today, Rachel. It's my pleasure. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. So we have a lot to discuss, and I want to get right into it by asking you to tell us a little bit more about you. I read about you in your husband's great book, Here Right Matters. He raves about you and gives you a lot of credit, but I'd love to maybe give you a brief um, rundown of your life. Well, I would. I hope that I can live up to his <laughs> uh, his description of me. Um, but it's it's nice when your partner is able to write a book and you you can see what they how they do view you because I think you know sometimes we get through the the humdrum of life we don't sit down to really describe our partner to someone else and um, he, I was I was honored but um, so I was born and raised in Oklahoma I lived there um, all through my formative years until I was twenty four. So went to school there, um, and then I left to, I had an opportunity to move to Israel. So I moved to Israel, I worked with um, an NGO, and did various things there, uh, but really kind of got a taste for, um, I wouldn't say just travel, but, uh, you know, 
working and living among different cultures, understanding that the world was a lot bigger than Oklahoma. (laughs) And um, then I moved back to the U.S. I actually wanted to be, I wanted to work for the FAA because they have a large training center in Oklahoma City. And I thought it was a good way to live near my family, but also be able to travel. So I got this great idea. I was going to become a flight attendant, which (laughs) I did. And then I would get some experience and then I could work in management, which would then allow me to get a job with the FAA. So I had a pretty tight timeline. But alas, I met my husband and he, you know, whisked me off to be a military spouse. And just a few months after we got married, we actually moved to Germany. And um, that was kind of the end of my professional career until... I don't, I don't know what my professional career is right now, except perhaps activist or podcaster or just, uh, you know, local woman who speaks her mind. But um, that that's kind of the, the short version of uh, my timeline, I guess. I have to just say, I, when I graduated law school, loved travel so much that I actually applied for a job at what was then TWA or Pan Am. It was Pan Am because I thought that I would get the travel benefits as a lawyer for the company. And when I found out that lawyers working for the company did not get the travel benefits, I said, no, I have no interest in working for you. (laughs) It was really the travel benefits. Isn't that funny? I didn't know that. I thought everyone who worked for the company just got the travel benefits. I thought so too. Obviously I was wrong, but (laughs) <laughs> Sorry for interrupting, Victor. Wow. Go ahead. No, no, that's amazing. No, it's it. First of all, travel is such a big passion for I know Jill and also for a lot of our listeners and mm-hmm. guests too. So that's an awesome experience to have. I want to maybe shift toward um, a piece that you wrote in the USA Today titled "It Was My Time to Fight Back: uh, My Journey from the Republican Party Through Grief to Advocacy." Um, we'll post a show note um, or a link to the show note. Um, but let's maybe start with what were the policies and values that attracted you to the Republican Party at first. Well, as I mentioned, I was born and raised in Oklahoma, so I think that's probably like the baseline. I mean, that's just what you do. Uh, But I mean, you know, small government in Oklahoma in the way I was raised. I mean, you know, we're not super interested in the government being involved in every detail of our lives. And that was what I had heard. So that's what I thought. I mean, I was young, you know, and um, then I think there's certain things that the Republican Party has kind of owned or co-opted. I mean, supported the military, and then I was a military spouse. And, you know, it all just kind of made sense. I never really examined it that much. So I will say when I'm criticized for that, I own that criticism because I I didn't think about it very much at all. But Even now, I mean, I have a pretty visceral reaction to extremists on both sides because, well, you know, actually, I I mentioned I lived in Israel. One thing I I learned living in Israel, working in the territories, um, I in the Palestinian territories, that is, it was the extremists on both sides that caused the problems. I mean, 95% of the problems were the extremists on each side. And they were the loudest. They caused the most problems and um, really started the fight that other people had to fix. And and that's a lot of what it is in the United States. So um, I think when you're a member of one party, 
what you see in the other party are the extremists. And that is kind of what you react against. So that's what you're pushing against whenever you identify perhaps what you believe. What you believe is like the bad things that you don't want to be on the other side, if, if, that, if that makes sense. So I don't, I don't know that there were a lot of beliefs. I just read something this morning, in fact, that um, a friend of mine, Marissa Rothkopf, put on Twitter, just a reminder that her students, her college students that she teaches, did not even know about Roe v. Wade. They'd never had to think about it. Mm-hmm. So I think I'm kind of that generation. You know, I never had to think about whether reproductive rights would be legal. I mean, I, I just turned 48 and I'm not young and I still was probably not old enough to fully appreciate it. Her students are definitely not old enough to appreciate it. So there's a lot of things that I perhaps, you know, really took for granted and leaps that women have made. And now that I stop and think about them, and now that they're in jeopardy, I would absolutely, if I went back, I would identify with the Democratic Party. But um, at the time, it just it wasn't an issue for me. We've had guests on to talk about how if the youth don't get involved in that particular issue, it's hopeless. And that mm-hmm. the reason they're not involved is exactly what you just identified, is that they don't even think about the fact that they might mm-hmm. not have access when they need it. So, Yeah, but I think that's the saddest part is that young people have to live in that reality now. So um, mm-hmm. it's sad and it's a fight that, yes, our generation, the younger generation should definitely get involved in. And I want to go back to the piece that you wrote because it was such a powerful piece. And you wrote that the GOP strayed far from the policies of the GOP that you joined. Mm -hmm. Um, What were the first changes and when did the changes happen, do you think? Well, I certainly thought that the way um, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford was treated was ridiculous. Um, To see the way she was treated just because she was saying something that was inconvenient was appalling. Um, in, in other policies, I think the entire, the, the way President Obama was treated was, was also appalling to me. At that point, we lived overseas and we were stationed at Actually, both of our time in Kiev and our time in Moscow was during his presidency. And I really saw the way we treated, the way the American people treated President Obama through the eyes of foreigners. And I mean, they just thought we were so backwards. And and I mean, again, had I been in the U.S., I would have noticed it. But you, you get a little numb to the rhetoric. You get a little numb to the political discourse. But I was seeing it through them. They were telling me things and they were right. And it was it was hard that I'd never really examined it or looked at it. That was a, a little difficult for me. But they, again, they were 100% right. So that was part of it. Um, and, and then, you know, I think that's when I really started on... Nothing like perhaps 2020, but that that's really what got me thinking about racial relations in the United States and my own. I didn't I wouldn't have defined it as privilege at the time, but my own prejudices and how I was raised and 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 the 
the advantages that I had that other people didn't have and how those, um, you know, informed my everything about my life and the way that I make decisions and, you know, really realizing that other people didn't. And again, going back to being a military spouse, I mean, that was also a very eye-opening experience because when I married Alex, he was a company commander in charge of 175 soldiers or so. And, you know, I had traveled the world, but I hadn't had a lot of experience with other um, maybe socioeconomic groups, my own country. And there was certainly a lot of that. And there was just a lot of family dynamics, a lot of things that some people thought were normal that I definitely did not grow up with. So um, it was, you know, and I think every everyone goes through journeys, but it's it's sort of, I can judge people and I probably did plenty of that. But maybe even in the midst of my judging, I also learned, hey, really the way where we are, acting as adults is so much formed by the way we grew up and the conversations that were had in our own families and our houses. And that's really what people are acting like. And the only way we can change it is if one in my family, I am very conscious about the conversations I have with my child, but also meet people where they are and give them a chance to do better and to be better. And if I'm going to ask that, then I have to do that of myself as well, and being able to examine my closely held beliefs and make changes, course corrections when necessary. You mentioned the Christine Blasey Ford testimony during now um, Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing. And in that piece, you wrote that that really began your journey away from the mm-hmm. Republican Party. Mm-hmm. So that makes me want to ask, given the Katanji Brown-Jackson hearings and her treatment, how you felt watching the treatment um, toward Katanji Brown-Jackson by Republicans? Well, it was... I, I've run out of adjectives to describe it, but... Um, I mean, it was vile. It was predictable, though, and I was expecting it. So it was less shocking. Um, maybe it was less surprising, but perhaps, but still shocking in a way, simply because um, after 2020, that they could still, with such veiled, I mean, they, they didn't even try to disguise their disgust for her. Um, all four of the sound bites on Fox News and whatever is to the right of Fox News these days, um, just for those sound bites they could use in their campaigns and whatever. Um, and that was that was the only reason. It was all performative. Um, and then you see there's no substance. There's just a performance of hatred and to see how low you can go. So I was, I was disappointed. I was disappointed for our country because it was a moment that could have unified us. And, and it didn't, I mean, to ask her where she goes to church or how often she goes to church. I mean, my goodness, like it was, it was just so silly. And, but, but that's who they are. I I mean, and I will say, I don't think that's even who the Republican party was even 30 years ago, but that's definitely who they are now. And I'll tell you a little story. Uh, this weekend, my husband and I were invited to the Gridiron Dinner, which was lovely. It was an honor to go. And and we had a good time. And many Republicans, many, came up to my husband and said kind things to him. And they denounced the current party. And I know everyone thinks I always just say whatever's in my head. But I don't. Because I held my tongue. But I wanted to say what are you doing about it? You know it's a problem, but what are you doing to stop it? 
But I know I would have, it just would have ruined my evening and they wouldn't have had anything good to say. So I didn't ask, but I was shouting it on the inside. I can only imagine how hard it would be not to confront someone in that absurd (laughs) circumstance. Uh, And with all of them, except so far, Susan Collins saying that they will vote against her confirmation, it just confirms Mm -hmm. what you're saying, which is they've become awful. They have become interested only in the politics and the sound bites. And so let's go back to your journey from being a Republican to whatever you are today, but certainly not a supporter of Donald Trump or the current Republican stances. And I understand that you marched in the first woman's march the day after Trump was Mm -hmm. inaugurated. And Mm -hmm. um, I'm just wondering what reservations you had about Donald Trump at that point that led you to join that march and what group you marched with and tell us more about that experience. Sure. It was, it was actually, I, uh, my first march was actually two years after it was not the first one. Um, I, I, um, it was in, I believe in 2019, actually, um, that was the first one that I attended. Um, my husband was working at the white house and I, um, some friends of mine, actually my parents' friends, um, were, came in to March and, um, and they said, Hey, do you want to join us? And that was, uh, after dark, um, Justice Kavanaugh's, um, uh, confirmation. So that was the first one. And I said, yes, I would like to join you. So actually the one after President Trump, my, my sister-in-law went and my, my brother-in-law and my husband's twin, they just lived down the street. And I didn't go with him because at the time, I I don't know. But I have regrets about that, to be honest with you. I did think seriously about it, but I didn't go with him. Um, so fast forward, I did go to the one in, 20, um, in 2019 in January. And uh, it. so I just walked with, um, you know, marched with, with – um, one of my, my, both my parents have passed away, but some one of my mom's good friends and, and some people that she had come with. And again, an older generation who really understood what was at stake. Um, the signs are priceless. If you haven't attended a women's march, I mean, the, the, it's worth it just to go for the signs, um, <laughs> the entertainment value, but it was, it was just to see so many women who, again, were, were fighting for things that, that many take for granted, that rights that we only have because they have marched. I just felt the need to join them in that journey, um, knowing that a lot of those rights were directly under assault. And we absolutely see that now. I mean, this was, this was several years ago. So um, I, I felt that need. I kind of like, I guess I would look at my generation as, you know, generation X certainly is like a, the gap generation. Like we understand it because our mothers went through it, but it, then our, I only have an 11 year old, but I mean, I could have a much older child and, you know, and I, I, our children don't understand because they've never had to question it. So I feel like going for me was not that I was effective, but just to fight with the people who came before me who understand it and fight for the people who are too young to really get it yet until we 
raise them up to know you've got to keep fighting too, which is sad, but it's true. So it's much older people who don't understand, including Victor's generation, who's never had to worry about the rights that um, I fought for. I marched Mm -hmm. in the 60s for civil rights. In fact, I was at the Department of Justice and marching in front of the White House, knowing the risk I was taking in doing that, Mm. but felt that I had to speak out against the war in Vietnam. I was definitely part of the first Women's March, the 2017 one, and everyone since. I even have my little pink, and I don't know if I can say the word without getting an explicit (laughs) rating, but I have my pink hat. Uh, so I'm keeping us, so we don't get an explicit rating. Um, <laughs> and, and I do, I really appreciate that. Was was that sort of a turning point in terms of not supporting Donald Trump anymore? Or was it did something before that? I don't think I ever supported Donald Trump, but I wanted to support my country. I wanted to support the office of president and have respect for it. And I tried. I tried. I hoped that he would rise to the occasion. We know he never did. And certainly it was very difficult for me when my husband went to work at the White House, um, just because, I mean, come on. It was was just, as you know, I mean, it was something all the time. But he, he had wanted that job. For so long, and he had, he had wanted to do it and tried to work at the National Security Council. So I didn't want to dampen something that was obviously a career highlight for him. But I've his boss was Dr. Fiona Hill, who for you know, a woman for whom I've had tremendous respect and followed and, and read all her books. So, uh, you know, I thought, well, Fiona's there. I mean, she hired him like they they do have good people and and. I mean, you know, they do have good people. And this is something my husband has talked about before, during and after impeachment time. But, you know, it's the civil servants, it's the public servants who really keep the wheels running. So, I mean, you know, you can have some bad political actors or some novice political actors. But, uh, you know, if you have that steady... uh, You know, government employees who, who... really have all the institutional knowledge and the subject matter expertise, then you can you can do you can weather some bad things. It's just when they attack, um, which I saw very on early on that Trump was doing attack from a, I guess, standards and ethics type uh, point of view, that was something that, you know, we were never really designed to withstand. And that's when it became difficult. But um, I I never supported him, but I mean, certainly my 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 thoughts about him went, you know, were constantly degraded. The more he spoke, <laughs> the more uh, actions he took. It wasn't just his words, though. It was also his deeds. I mean, how he just got rid of anyone who gave him any opposition to the criming and the grifting that he tried to do. Wow, that must have led to some very interesting discussions in your household with someone working in the White House <laughs> What was that like? We didn't really discuss it too much. Um, I have a lot of practice in this area because, you know, certainly being stationed at embassies, you know, there was, we couldn't even like, we couldn't even really even discuss finances at home. I mean, we would have to like go into a secret secure area of the embassy technically. I mean, it's not like we had, 
we didn't really have problems. So sometimes we would talk about it. But if we were talking about big things, we would go into a secret place in the embassy, an actual skiff to to discuss it. You don't have to like reserve it and go in just just, you know, just because. So good practice. So I was very used to not talking about a lot of things with my husband and um, his work. He worked very long hours. So maybe just time wise, we didn't have time to discuss it. But he never expressed any I did not know anything about what he was going through until the night he told me, hey, there's a whistleblower. Can you please check on my and I was like, Oh, yeah, I heard about that. And he said, Can you please check on my personal my my professional liability insurance tomorrow? So yeah, I didn't sleep that night. He rolled over and went to sleep. I did not. And I then was googling because I'd actually heard about the whistleblower, but I hadn't. um, I remember I was in the car and I was like, I'm gonna look that up later. And of course, I never you know, I forgot about it. And, And then I did. And I I will say, I do remember there was a July 25th phone call. That part I did know because I knew Alex had wanted that. So he had mentioned, yeah, like there was a call and I was like, how did it go? And he was like, yeah. But I mean, I didn't ask questions and he didn't offer any more color commentary. So mm. that was it. But I mean, I mean, for something not to have gone the way he wanted was, you know, perhaps not that unusual and not any reason for me to ask. But um, yeah, you know, so as we as everyone knows, his brother worked across the hallway he was an attorney and my sister-in-law is, you know, about as left as they come. No offense to her, but I mean, she's just, so, so yeah, I mean, lots of family discussions, uh, just, you know, and I think for Alex and Eugene, for them, it was just an issue of being, of, of just, um, you have to protect yourself. So you have to believe in what you're doing. So I don't think they, you know, I mean, do they would they have done things differently? Yes. But I think as long as things were above board, they were, you know, more than happy as as they should be as military officers to carry out the policy of the United States and advance the, you know, ad- advance the interests, national security interests of the United States, which is what the National Security Council does and to organize people. So whatever the policy, as long as it's not illegal, they're happy to carry it out. And that is the training of a military officer uh, to be informed and to know what is a legal order that they have to follow Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. versus an illegal order, which they must not for fear of committing war crimes, as we are now seeing in Ukraine. But we'll we'll get to that issue later. But clearly, Mm -hmm. badly trained military from the Russian side. Mm-hmm. Anyway, at, at what point did you and your husband actually discuss your feelings about this? I mean, w- was it something that was difficult to do? You didn't need to be in a skiff anymore, or maybe you did. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. I got a little tense there. Um, so with the end of the fiscal year of 2019, um, we had, unfortunately, uh, and sometime in the summer, we discovered that we had this horrible dishwasher leak that had led to a lot of mold. And um, we moved out of our house for quite some time. We lived in his brother, my brother-in-law's basement. We could have lived in a hotel, um, but Alex and Eugene didn't want to mess up their commute. So we stayed in their basement for several <laughs> several weeks. And then um, we were back in our house. And the if anyone's ever dealt with insurance, I mean, our insurance was great and really took care of it, but it took forever. We had to have a completely new kitchen. 
So um, he took off the, in the military, you have like use or lose days, and he was going to lose some of his leave days if he didn't take them. And the UN General Assembly was in New York that week. But after we had come back from vacation, um, which was we left a couple of days after July 25th, after we came back, Alex had flown back early uh, to because he thought that Ambassador Bolton, then the National Security Advisor, well, he he did go on a trip to all of the countries in Alex's, um, it was Moldova, Ukraine, and I can't remember the other one, but he, he visited all the countries in Alex's portfolio. So Alex flew back early and then he got back and they said, oh no, you're not going on the trip. And that was, I think the first time for him that he thought, hey, something's up, but he didn't, he didn't share that with me. So during the UN General Assembly, Alex assumed he would go because President Zelensky was going to be there. And it was known that President Trump was going to sit down with President Zelensky for the first time. And then he was like, oh, no, you're not going to the UN General Assembly. So Alex decided to take off the week. And um, we were. That's the week, I think, that we first started discussing it, that I was Mm. like, we need to figure out what's going on. Um, I don't know what's going on, but I think, you know, there's some like. He, he knew about the whistleblower then. He'd already told me about that, but we hadn't really discussed it. That that had been the week before. But so so he kind of, again, he took like a last minute week off. We were trying to get everything situated with, with the renovation and get that, get that taken care of. And then um, it was our my first meeting as a Girl Scout leader. And we had taken some things to be laminated and we were literally eating lunch out of five guys. And Alex was watching the footage of the of President Zelensky and President Trump meeting. And I said, I'm not trying to be harsh, but you're in a five guys watching uh, this meeting on your phone. Maybe this NSC thing is not going to work out for you. You might want to find another place to work because I don't think you are doing or you're able to do your job the next day the whistleblower's complaint was made public after alex read the whistleblower's complaint um he more completely understood everything and um that's when we really got started i think on putting together a legal team should he be subpoenaed and um working on that so was that the first time you knew that he was a source of information? When I read the whistleblower's complaint, I was able to piece it together. I never directly asked him. Um, only when I read the transcript of his closed-door hipsy testimony was when I understood. I mean, I also helped him write his uh, opening statement. Yeah. So I kind of read between the lines there. But even I remember when we were editing it, um, I... I didn't ask. I just was like, we we literally went over every single word. Mm-hmm. Like, I guess, as Jill, as an attorney would do. Exactly. Um, but we, we, every word choice, um, whether, was it wrong? Was it improper? I mean, you know, but every single thing we went over that, um, his description. And so I was able, again, to kind of piece between the lines, but didn't really... Still didn't really fully understand it until I kind of read other transcripts and saw the totality of the um, of the of the testimonies. Well, I can say as someone who listened to his testimony, you did a great job. <laughs> and <laughs> unfortunately, it's had bad. I wanted to humanize him. I mean, I well, I, I guess you know, 
because I saw the way other people were treated and I really thought it was important to humanize him. And I guess I unfortunately, I wish I would have been wrong about this. I was concerned about him being an immigrant because I had seen the way the administration um, had militarized, weaponized immigration and immigrants and the way that had unleashed um they did they didn't create racism or xenophobia or any anti-immigrant uh you know sentiments they just unleashed them they they opened pandora's box and those people crawled out and and then they had no compunction about saying the things that they felt on the inside for a long time so i knew very much that my husband was going to be on the end of that but i wanted to frame it i wanted him to have that first word of framing it so some people at least reasonably people could could know his story and understand um, where he came from. And and that, unfortunately, has had a huge impact on your husband's career, on your mm-hmm. life, on your whole family, uh, his brother. Um, mm-hmm. And you wrote about that also in the USA Today piece and talked about uh, your family in the eye of the storm, weathering ugly and vile attacks. Um, can you say a little bit more about those attacks and um, what the consequences were, both personally, financially, emotionally? Uh, mm-hmm. Your daughter, how does this all work? Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's been difficult. Uh, you know, it's we're, we're kind of on the other side of it, but it'll always be part of our lives now, I think, um, or certainly for the, for the near future. So personally... Um, I wasn't prepared. At first, there was this wave of support. And and of course, that was still there. But the problem is, the more support you receive, then the other side works extra hard to. And, and so initially, we received the support. And then um, I always say the weekend after his first testimony was the worst time because the president spoke about about it spoke about him by name. I think he was asked about him, but um, he said something about him. And then um, the president's sons were uh, all over attacking him. And um, there were some security concerns at first. We did, uh, you know, we took some, some measures. The army was somewhat helpful um, on personal security. That's the best thing I can say about the army and the DOD uh, in this whole process, but they, they did offer uh, some, some help there. And, um, you know, our daughter was, was really fine. I mean, she was young at the time. She was in third grade. She didn't fully understand it. Alex was mentioned on some of the like late night talk shows and she enjoyed, you know, if we watched it, like seeing his name or, you know, it's kind of funny. So so she enjoyed that. We were able to protect her from a lot of that initially. And um, then, you know, once he was fired from the White House, um, that was, and of course the allegations had already been made, um, Actually, on the first night before his his closed door hipsy testimony, so by Laura Ingram, and it was on Laura Ingram's show. It was Laura Ingram, John Yu, Alan, and Alan Dershowitz. John Yu and Alan Dershowitz actually later both apologized. Um, 
not on Fox News, but they did apologize <laughs> and uh, not know where it would be most both most meaningful. But those allegations, once they're out there, they're done. And Alex was made very clear to him that his career and his area of expertise would be over. Serving in the military, he would never be able to serve in that area of the world again because his allegiance had been compromised. And, and you know, he, he does understand that. I mean, I think it was he didn't maybe believe it for a long time or I mean, he understood it, but hoped he could get around it. But there was no getting around it. So professionally, I want to be very clear. He could have stayed in the military, but they also made it very clear to him he would be warming a seat and collecting a paycheck. And that would have been just tantamount to, you know, to death by a thousand paper cuts for my husband who, you know, likes to engage, uh, you know, in and use his expertise um, and always be part of something and, you know, doing good. So um, he wanted to make the list that he, you know, to make a colonel and fast forwarding several months, but um, the White House actively blocked the promotion list to colonel and would not allow it to be released. Uh, and and we had several accounts of that. And, and we also had several friends who were waiting on that list for to know if their family was going to move or if they were going to make the next rank. And, and they were even, you know, some of it kind of joking and some of it kind of pointed like, are you really going to get promoted? Because if you're not going to get promoted, why are you holding everything up for everyone? Wow. And even friends who understood us and they understood. But I mean, and, and although I was really pushing Alex to make a decision as well. So I appreciated, I guess, that in some ways. But, you know, it was it was hard because um, I think he had worked so hard for that rank and to make that rank. And he just wanted it to be, he knew he was chosen, but he wanted it to be, you know, released publicly. But in the end, he retired on the last day that he could have or announced his retirement. And then the list was released two days later. But in that time, I'm the DOD um, obliged the White House and had an investigation into allegations against Alex, which they didn't find anything because there was nothing to find. But just the fact that they even did the investigation behind it, but he only found out from reporters. When he questioned them, they admitted it. But they never told him he was under investigation. And I wish they would have in some ways, because then I think it would have made his decision a lot easier and he wouldn't have, you know, have pondered over it so long. But, um, you know, there was a lot of scrambling. There were a lot of uh, late nights and early morning wake ups and, and a little sleep. But because we really did not know what we were what he was going to do. Um, and a lot of people we got a lot of, hey, you're great, but you're kind of radioactive when we can't hire you. And there was a lot of that, which I think is not just it's not just us. It's many people who were fired by Trump because they wanted to wait and see what was going to happen in the election. They, they did not want to have someone that would draw on their staff or whatever who would draw fire from President Trump. People were so afraid of him. Even good organizations, they were so afraid of Trump. It's really, it's, it's just so disheartening um, to see how he was able to bully people. Um, in some ways, just his behavior of others was enough to bully, like, de facto. I mean, so, so upsetting. Um, so 
fast forward to where we are now, we're we're fine. I mean, Alex has really carved out. He worked really hard. He's working on his his uh, master's or sorry, his his doctorate in international relations at Johns Hopkins at SICE. And, um, you know, has a lot of opportunities and we're trying to figure out which one to take. But it wasn't always like that. So I, I want to say, even though it looks good now, um, there was a time when it was very scary. But many people go through scary times. I think if you hold on, you do the right thing, keep working, keep pressing, keep keep moving forward, which I said in that USA Today piece at the end, keep moving forward, that you will make things happen. Um, but it doesn't mean that there are not going to be some scary times in between, and there certainly were for us. Well, from the perspective of those who don't understand, making kernel is a big deal. And being a full bird is really an important thing. And he earned it. He deserved it. It was completely political and immoral that he was denied that promotion. Um, But I'm glad that you are now on the other side of that and that he is making (laughs) a great contribution, as are you, to our society. So sorry what you went through. Glad it's sort of over. And as you said, it it's going to always be part of your life, so it's not really over. But. Well, John Dean told Alex that pretty early on, and I mean, who would know better? Exactly. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but yeah, I will say Vladimir Putin has often, good, better, and different, been somewhat good for Alex's career. I hate to say it in this, this circumstance because <laughs> yeah. there are yes. there's horrible, horrible people paying a price, um, mm-hmm. uh, as we all know. And, but... Um, the Ukraine crisis has allowed Alex to be known for something else, that he really does right. have some expertise, that yeah. he was there listening to that call because, and, and he reported it when other people didn't, not because they did, they knew, they understood it was not okay what the president did, but they didn't have all the context. But because he understood the region and the subject matter so much, he understood the danger of what the president was asking, what he was withholding. And what he wanted um, in, in a unique way. And now I think people are seeing that just in a much bigger picture. Um, and, and so he's he's been able to not just be the impeachment Ukraine guy, but also yes. the, oh, you really do know Ukraine, mm-hmm. don't you, um, guy. <laughs> and he's been doing great on TV. And I, I want to go back to the point that you mentioned okay. about um, the um, – I guess, moving forward and how you ended your USA Today piece, because at the end, it was so inspiring. And I thought back to um, a couple of conversations that we've had on this podcast with um, victims of gun violence, like Fred Gutenberg, um, mm-hmm. whose daughter, Jamie, was killed at Marjorie um, Stoneman Douglas High School. Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to compare the criticism you got with the loss of those parents, but just more how you turned criticism to motivate you to action. And I think many people listening to us now are upset, angry, and want to do something to change our politics and cultural classes. Mm. I'm just wondering um, how you managed to turn grief into action. Well, as you know, Victor, you you read our book, your, uh, Alex's book. And mm-hmm. in it, um, he talked about that we had a daughter who passed away. She was born very early mm. and she only lived a week. And after that, I mean... I had to make the conscious decision that I wasn't going to lie in bed all day, that I was going to get up and do something because it was my way of honoring Sarah's life was to wake up and do something 
And hey, that's not to say that if, you know, you're having a bad day and you want to stay in bed or, you know, there, there are other things, there are various reasons, I think, you know, that people go through depression, but eventually you have to come out of it and you have to live because if you're here and if, and if that takes help, get it so you can do it so you can rejoin um, everyone else. But I think it's after your period of mourning of grief, um, it's important to honor the people that you've lost or, or whatever, or the experience that you've had. So this was my way of honoring the tremendous amount of support that we received from the American people who so identified with Alex's moral courage, with his um, willingness to sacrifice in order to do the right thing. Because, and what I learned from that is People are hungry for someone who wants to stand up and do the right thing. And so many people don't. And I can't tell you the number of stories that he has of like, I wasn't going to say anything on this, you know, whatever, but something happened at work. But I thought of your husband or, you know, I thought of you, Alex, and and I did it. And and so it's not standing up to the president, but, but in all our lives, like just to have that example of someone who did the right thing. And you see, that's important. So I think in my activism, if you will, I, I, that word, I'm not super comfortable with it still, as you can see. But it's it's about using the voice you have. And, and you never know where life is going to take you. I mean, no one does. So you, but if you eschew that responsibility, I think that's, you're really leaving cards on the table. And, and I don't think that's, that really does anyone a service. So Right now, um, this is why I'm speaking out now. And I think the, the moment now, you know, if President Biden had won and and January 6th had happened and things seemed to be going well, maybe I wouldn't be so out there. Maybe I would have kind of faded. But that's not the moment we're in. So I think we're really in an all-hands-on-deck situation. Recently, um, my husband met with someone who is somewhat of considerable means, who said, I always want to stay out of politics, but now I think I don't have a choice. And I love that this person came to that conclusion. I think everyone has something to give. This person can give money. Other people can give their, you know, walking around canvassing energy. Everyone has in, in many, many spaces in between, but everyone has something to give. And what are we giving it for? We are giving it for democracy and freedom. Go back to arguing about your tax rates. I don't care. Let's go back to arguing about states' rights. I'd love it. I would love to be talking about those things. But right now, the only thing that matters to me is democracy, and it is very much in danger. And as I keep telling my husband, when he's working on Ukraine stuff all day, and I love it, but you know what? Nothing about Ukraine is going to matter if we don't have democracy here. Because in one year or two years, if we don't keep what we have now, Ukraine will also pay the price for that. So I just, you know, I want to work on both things at the same time. And I definitely want to help them win. But we also have to keep working on democracy. We can't let that slide while we're doing this. That is so true. And um, you really took action. And I think 
by first finding some sort of purpose and also by joining a movement of um, women who were using their voices to fight for what they cared about most. Um, and you created this podcast called Suburban Woman Problem. And I'm wondering if you can tell us more about that podcast and how you use it to help suburban women play a role in politics and make a difference. I think it's funny that right after, um, you know, the the midterm election, right before the midterm elections and after the Christine Blasey Ford, after Dr. Ford came forward for the Kavanaugh hearings, um, you know, Lindsey Graham was like, oh, hey, we have a suburban women problem. Gee, I wonder why, Lindsey Graham. Um, why, why could that be? But you know, this is a very important demographic. And we can see that we have, you know, the crazy moms for liberty. Um, and we have these groups that, and, and these are, you know, groups meant to reach out to suburban women, but they're started in DC think tanks and founded by the Koch brothers and the Heritage Foundation and all kinds of right wing um, players and actors. But we are, uh, the Suburban Women Problem podcast is sponsored by Red, White and Blue, which is a political uh, action committee and Red, Wine and Blue. If I don't, and we you know, really have some grassroots efforts to educate women on the issue so they can take it and talk to the people in their community and kind of demystify whether it's critical race theory or trans kids rights. And we just did an episode a couple of weeks ago and we're talking about the don't say gay bill. So we usually have like kind of a bigger name guest and then a everyday mom, everyday woman. Sometimes it's a man. One time it was Alex. But, uh, you know, it's it's our everyday woman was from Florida, the mom of a trans child. And, you know, she told us something that I still find this like shocking every time I think of it. The don't say gay bill in Florida was started by a parent whose child was identified as I'm not sure if it was trans or gay. This parent blamed the school, and that's how this bill got started. And I know, right? I think this is such an important thing to say to counter. So when you know, if you know the truth and the background about things and people are talking about it, you can counter it easier. So this was just someone not being able to accept their child's sexuality or gender identity and having a whole state have to fall under these rules. And what's the effect? You know, okay, well, we'll tell you. The effect of that is that we have teachers quitting in the middle of the year at unprecedented rates. In August, in September, there we already have a teacher shortage. We're going to have a much bigger one because teachers are terrified. They're overworked. They're underpaid. This has been going on for a long time. But we've added something new to the mix, the threat of lawsuits. The th threat of being fired, the threat of, you know, personal attacks. And this is just ongoing. We're not going to have enough educators to educate our children. And then where are we now? Where are we then? This is a direct tie from, you know, um, oh, I can't even think of her name. Um, the former education secretary. DeVos. And what she wants. Yes, DeVos, Betsy DeVos. Um, I mean, a name that goodness, we don't like to use family. very much for obvious reasons. Yes, or I like to use her brother's name even less, yes. to be honest. <laughs> but, I, I mean, that, that family, they have some issues. Um, but they, uh, let's privatize the military. Let's privatize education. What could go wrong? Well, just look at their family. And I think uh, the handiwork we can see. But the... Um, 
this is something that they've been setting up for a long time and you can really see the effects. So that's part of what we try to do on our podcast, just connect these dots and let, you know, women and men, we have some male listeners, take those tidbits, that information out in their, to their community. And, you know, on a, on a, a local level, we've had tremendous support. Everyone that we supported for school board in November who ran against crazy anti-CRT people, when they went out and educated their constituency, they won because they were able to counter it in a meaningful way. And it, it was helpful, but it takes a lot of effort. And so we have what we call troublemaker training, where we show women how to show up at your school board meetings. You don't have to join the crazy. You can be there. You can just offer your support as just a person in the audience, as a parent. Um, but then there are other ways. You know, we talk ways to fight against book bans. And um, that's a, a, a big initiative of ours. And just raise awareness to the book bans because some of these are really being done in quiet. They don't want to talk about it because they don't want the... They don't want to have to defend themselves, but they want the books removed. And so we've... You know, we we are trying to get this constituency um, prepared for the midterms, but also for the 2024 presidential election, which, I mean, it is going to be, uh, it's going to be fought everywhere, of course, but this is the, the demographic that we're working on. Well, Victor and I have had a lot of guests on talking about the importance of down ballot races, and particularly mm -hmm. as we are seeing now with things like banning books and all the other mm -hmm. issues in schools, it really makes a difference. And what you're calling little tidbits, I would call facts. And facts yes, matter. Yes, yes. They really do. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. getting they them do out. Because they because they build. Yeah, they build the story. You understand how things happen and, and where, how we got to this point. Because I think all of us think like, how did we get here? But that's how we got here. I mean, that that is, it's just incredible to think like, there's a whole bill called Don't Say Gay because a parent couldn't accept their child's sexuality. And that's a really crazy place to start. And it's it's also just a place of, you know, of hatred, um, of bigotry, and not wanting to face reality, which is kind of a metaphor for the current Republican Party. Yeah. Isn't that sad? And it's <laughs> I, I also liked your point about how what's happening in Ukraine is relevant to our democracy, uh, not only mm -hmm. because Ukraine is what's standing between Putin and the rest of Europe in the yeah. same way that Austria and Czechoslovakia were standing between mm -hmm. Europe and Hitler. And I, I hope people see the relationship to our democracy and, and what's at stake here. Um, but I, I want Victor to end with um, his favorite question of all of our guests. <laughs> Uh, well, so I guess the last question we always like to ask people is, um, just what advice do you have for young people? Well, I listened to your podcast, so I, I was expecting this come, this question. It's not a surprise to me. I like to do my homework. Um, my advice to young people is this is your country as much as it is everyone else's. But with that comes responsibility. And I'm anytime I think about this, I'm just reminded of President Kennedy's words. 
um, you know, we need to ask what we can do for our country first and foremost in order for it to be the country we want it to be and the way to shape it. And that is all of our responsibility. We are never too young to think about that and to start shaping it. So, and I also think there's such power because I hear so much about how young people don't vote and they should just be discounted. And we're seeing that change. We really are. So get out there and don't be discouraged. Even if people say young people don't change voices, just prove it differently. You don't have to, to talk about it. You don't have to counter it with words. Do it with deeds and they're going to listen to you. And you have, you have, your vote has the same amount of power as my vote has. And make sure that you're using it wisely and that you're incentivizing your peers to do the same. Well, your preparation definitely paid off with a great answer. <laughs> and I've so enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so Thank much you so for much. being with us and spending your time. And I know our listeners are going to love it. Thank great. you so much, Rachel. Lovely. Thank you so much, guys. Have a great afternoon. Thanks. Thank you so much for watching or listening to this episode of iGen Politics. We hope you enjoyed this as much as we did and that you'll tune in next week for another episode of iGen Politics wherever you follow your podcast, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or any other platform. We hope that you also, if you watch us on YouTube, you like us, you subscribe to us, and you hit the bell for our weekly notifications for episodes that drop every Wednesday. 